Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. Thank you for joining us at the beginning of this new season of this program. We've been taping Deep in Scripture programs now for six or more years. And our goal has always been to, uh, to examine Scripture through the eyes of the church. Uh, the, the call for being deep in Scripture fits into, I guess you would say, a slogan for the work of the Coming Home Network, because we believe that by being deep in Scripture and deep in history, you become deeper in Jesus Christ. And that's our goal in this program, is to study the wonderful Word of God, but recognizing that there's a danger. Uh, It's the inspired, infallible Word of God, but there's a danger that can arise through private interpretation. And we try to examine that each week because we want to make sure that through the study of Scripture that we indeed are drawing closer to Jesus Christ in his church and not a a Jesus of our own creation, a church of our own creation, a spirituality of our own creation. And if you doubt whether that's possible, all you have to do is walk into any city and look around at all the different churches many of who not only disagree with one another, but teach contradictory things. And we address that in this short program each week. We're starting a new season of Deep in Scripture, and our goal for the program is slightly different than in the past. These episodes of Deep in Scripture we're calling Hard Verses. And what I'd like to do in this program is to invite a guest to join me to discuss a verse that was hard for them, given given their particular tradition that they were brought up in. And for my first program, I've invited a good friend, Jim Anderson. Hello, Marcus. How are you doing? Thanks, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Jim works with me here at the Coming Home Network. He is the manager of the outreach to what we call primaries. Uh, And uh, if you'd like to know more about our work, go to chnetwork.org and you'll find out what we do. Uh, I've invited Jim as my first guest. It's easy because he's here in the office, but it was also for us to to, to fine-tune our new direction in this program. We're calling it Hard Verses. And there's a scripture that, in a way, sets the stage for this idea of hard verses. It comes from John chapter 6, verse 60. And reading, the Apostle John writes, Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then a couple verses later in verse 66, he continues, After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Now, that, what that points to is that there were things that Jesus said that were not always easy to take or easy to understand, even to this day. And I, as I look back on my days as a minister, uh, as a Presbyterian pastor for about 10 years, I, I began to realize when I was a pastor that all of Scripture can be categorized under three basic headings. To use the analogy of weather, there were Scriptures that were clear, scriptures that were cloudy, and scriptures that were stormy. In other words, given my particular Christian tradition, which at the time was 
an evangelical slant of Reformed Calvinism, there were particular scriptures that were, to me, obviously clear. They did not, in my opinion, need any additional explanation. I could read them to my congregation. I could preach on them and did not assume that my congregation needed additional explanation. And one, there's lots of those verses that I could point to, but one, for example, that was clear to me was Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that verse uh, was a banner for me that inspired my teaching and my preaching. It was the motivation behind my entire ministry. The idea that once someone had accepted Christ as their Savior, they were then in Christ, and there therefore was no condemnation for that person. They were saved. Another way of describing that was the theology of once saved, always saved. I believe that to be true because my particular evangelical Reformed Calvinist theology believed that we are saved by grace through faith, period. And this was a gift of God, had nothing to do with anything we could do. So we were saved through Jesus Christ, through the faith we were given by grace. It was a gift, not because of we of our choosing of Jesus, but because of the gift of that grace. And because salvation, therefore, was a gift that we didn't deserve, it was also something we couldn't lose because it was a gift. And so I understood this verse to teach that. Mm -hmm. So that was a clear verse, and I could make a long list of those. There were also verses that, though, were cloudy to me. And what I mean by cloudy is that they didn't automatically fit within my understanding of Christianity. They needed some explanation. In fact, without the explanation, often these verses were avoided. But, but once I heard an explanation, usually from some teacher or writer that I trusted, I would grasp that explanation and it would become mine it would always be my knee-jerk explanation of a cloudy verse, which I believe therefore made a cloudy verse a clear verse. And a good example of that is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when our Lord says to Simon, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Well, as a Reformed Calvinist, I wasn't sure what to do with Peter. And as a Protestant, he certainly wasn't the Pope, and I didn't accept the, the usual hierarchical understanding of the church as pro, uh, proclaimed by traditional Catholicism. In fact, anything that reeked of Catholicism, in my view, had to be wrong. So I needed an explanation for that verse. And once I had an explanation, which is actually in the footnotes of my Revised Standard Version Bible, and that is that when Jesus said, you are Peter, he was using the Greek word petros. And when he says later, upon this rock, he was using the word petra. Those are Greek words for rock, but petros was interpreted as a small pebble, 
and the word Petra interpreted as rock, therefore, in my mind, made a distinction between what Jesus was saying to Simon Peter versus the rock of Peter's faith upon which the church would be built. So I interpreted that verse as referring not to the beginning of the papacy, but the, begin the beginning of the universal church based on the authentic faith that the father gave Simon had nothing to do with Simon, had only to do with his openness to the grace, the predestined grace of God. And so I was able to make cloudy verses into clear. But there was a third category, which were called stormy, or cyclone, <laughs> or hard verses. And these were verses that did not fit. Not only did they not fit into my theology, but I could not find an easy answer to explain them away. I might come up with some kind of answer if a parishioner challenged me on that verse, but I was never comfortable with the answer. And so generally, I didn't preach on those verses. I began the program quoting from John chapter 6. That's an, a whole area of Scripture I was uncomfortable with. But another example of a tough verse for me was 1 Timothy chapter 2 in which Paul writes, this is good and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, wait a second. From a Reformed Calvinist perspective, it was difficult to understand how God desires all to be saved, for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, when we believe that God, in his freedom, predestines people to be saved and that there's a limited atonement uh, obtained by the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, that not everyone is saved. And therefore, from the beginning of time, God at least foreknew, if not chose, that certain people would be saved and others not. That was the keystone of my theology, and I was not sure how to fit that. Now, Jim, first, let me get back to you. I'm sorry to let you sit there quietly, but th this categorization of Scripture, did that fit with your own background? Oh, yes. Uh, growing up, although my, my background was different than yours, uh, but I had my own categories of clear, cloudy, and stormy also. Um, some of them, some of mine uh, that were stormy were totally clear to you because I came from an Arminian background, such as you had no problems with predestination. I did, I did have problems with that. Well, a good example is that particular verse that for me was stormy and hard, and I was, yeah. was not particularly for you. No, no, because I didn't believe in limited atonement. I believed in Christ's universal atonement, that he died for all men and women, and uh, and that his the application of his redemption was specific to individuals, but that he had died for all men, which, by the way, I still believe. <laughs> From your Methodist perspective, you believe that on the bottom line, every individual person has the freedom to choose. Right. From my Calvinist and Lutheran background, mm -hmm. both my backgrounds right. combined, 
that I believed in the bondage of the will right. that began with Luther and then expounded on by Calvin. And strangely enough, I was later Lutheran, but I never lost the early Arminian beliefs. Those distinctions when I became Lutheran were not emphasized. I hope you're getting the gist of what Jim and I are, are addressing in this program, and that is that that the idea that Scripture itself is perspicuitous, that's the mm -hmm. word that means that the Bible is self-explanatory, is not clear, is not that easy. Because just between you, Jim, and me, mm -hmm. given our Christian backgrounds... And we were both committed Christians, too. It's not like one of us was some liberal that took the, uh, took the scriptures uh, flippantly. flippantly. No, we both believed in the inspiration and infallibility of scripture. And we both prayed for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We had both accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Amen. And that the Bible was the, the sole foundation for our faith. We both agreed mm -hmm. with that. But even just between you and me, there are verses that are clear for you, not for me, cloudy for you, not for me, hard for you, not for me, and back and forth. And in this program, each week I'd like to invite a guest to talk about verses that were hard for them and that were not necessarily hard for all Christians, but it was for my guest. And then to talk about, well, how did they uh, come to a better understanding? of that particular verse. So Jim, what I'd like to do now, now the explanation is behind us. <laughs> I'd like to throw it into your court. Given your background, mm -hmm. pick a verse that you would consider as you look back that you would have labeled hard with a capital H. Hard with a capital H for me and for many Protestant Christians uh, is Paul's uh, statement in Colossians 1.24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. Now, to a Protestant, this seems to contradict the finished work of Christ. Jesus died on the cross and I would have said for all men, uh, and his redemption was complete. And when he died in John 19.30, it says, it reports that Jesus said, it is finished, it is accomplished. Nothing needed to be added. Nothing else could be added. To think that we could add upon the work of Christ uh, that somehow it was incomplete, seemed to fly in the face of Christ and also to destroy the whole concept of grace. This was also uh, hard with a capital H verse for me. Uh, I don't remember ever preaching on this verse. I look back and I was in some form of Protestant ministry for over 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, youth and music and assistant and associate and senior and pastor for many years. I don't ever remember purposefully avoiding verses uh, because I was afraid of what my congregation would hear from them. 
But I don't remember preaching on this verse. This is one of those verses I don't really remember seeing before. I don't know why. (laughs) But as I look back on why this verse would have been hard, besides the things that you said, which Mm -hmm. are exactly true. I mean, that was the big issues. But there were other issues. Because as a Presbyterian, I also did not have a good explanation of suffering anyway. Right. How did it fit into the faith of a Christian? Because I was never a health and wealth gospel preacher by any means. That tended to be more the those from the Methodist tradition. Yeah. <laughs> but still, the, the idea and the purpose of suffering in the life of a Christian did not make a lot of sense to me. Um, there was a part of me that, that saw plenty of scriptures that seemed to indicate that God blesses the good man, the person that tries to follow in holiness, um, and the curses fall on the evil. We know the verse that says that the good and the bad fall on everyone, mm-hmm. like rain. We see that verse, but there are plenty of other verses that seem to delineate Interestingly enough, most of those come from the Old Testament. Exactly. However, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called to his his purposes. Work together for the good, the trajectory, (laughs) the projection of good. How does suffering fit? I didn't have a good answer for that. And especially as as Americans, we don't have good answers because we Americans are very spoiled If we were from Ethiopia, even as Protestants, we may have a better explanation. So on the one hand, suffering itself, how do you fit that in? How do you explain suffering? Mm -hmm. Remember, there was a book out, came out back when, it was written by a Jewish rabbi, I think, Mm -hmm. called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He was trying to deal with it himself. How do you explain that? Um, But a second part of this verse that I had a hard problem with, besides the the fact of, uh, uh, you know, the completeness of Christ's sacrifice is this idea of rejoicing. Yes. Rejoicing in suffering. No, wait a second. Uh, how do you wrap your mind around the idea of, of being happy yeah. about one's sufferings? Yes. I remember when I was in seminary, there was this one man. He was a health and wealth guy, by the way. Um who thought it was almost perverse to think that we should rejoice. And in the context, he was thinking of St. Ignatius of Antioch rejoicing that he was going to the amphitheater. He just thought that that man needed a psychologist. Jim's referring to one of the early church fathers that was writing seven letters to different churches and people on his way to, as he's being carried to Rome to face in the arena, the lions, and he's can't wait until he's the food of the lions. Then he will begin to be a disciple of Jesus. So rejoicing in our sufferings. I'm trying to imagine that as a pastor with a person laying in their hospital bed, suffering from some major disease. And for me to have the audacity to turn to that piece and say, hey, you're supposed to rejoice in your sufferings. I would not known how to apply that verse. But we tended to forget about other passages, such as where Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Well, let me address okay. that from my background, though, Jim. Mm -hmm. It's because the truth is, though I'm not sure that I admitted it, but or that even other Protestant ministers that I knew admitted it, but often we didn't know how to deal with and apply the actual teachings of Jesus Christ, like that very verse you talked mm -hmm. about. Now, after the cross and resurrection, mm -hmm. in the time of grace, the time of grace and faith, and no longer, quote, works, unquote, how do we deal with the passages of Christ that talk about picking up a pl in your plow, your suffering, your cross, obedience, being perfect, all those statements in the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, they were at least cloudy, if not stormy verses, when you come from a Lutheran, Calvinist perspective. So the idea of rejoicing in our sufferings, and then thirdly, the idea of doing this for the sake of somebody else. Yes. Paul's talking about for the people in the church. Right. I had no... There's no mental file folder for that in my Calvinist thinking. In my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. You had a struggle with that, Jim, as a mm -hmm. Methodist. I had no category for that as a Calvinist and or a Lutheran. Mm -hmm. How do you understand this, which we later came to discover was redemptive suffering. Now, when you look back, Jim, on your days as a Methodist and then a Lutheran, did you did you realize that these were not necessarily hard, stormy verses for other Christians? Actually, for this one, about everyone I knew had problems with it and didn't know what to do with it. So we did what we thought best. It's inspired the inspired word of God, it's true, but we don't know what to do with it, so we'll ignore it. Yeah, you read past it really quickly and yes. then focus on the next verse. Yeah, there, <laughs> there was a, another verse uh, which I found funny. What, uh, I remember specifically jumping over this particular verse in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul says, uh, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait a second, none of those people were at the crucifixion. Right. So what did Paul mean by before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I had no idea what they were talking about. The only thing I had with that was that... Paul's description of Jesus's crucifixion was so real and so intense that he's referring to that. That was how I got around. There's that. your knee-jerk answer to make yeah. that cloudy verse, at least, or at least from a stormy to a cloudy verse, right. at least. I didn't know. I mean, I was wondering, well, was he meaning the, the drawings of crucifixes down in the catacombs? Could that mm -hmm. mean what he's... But, but I, was, I would just read past, preach past that verse and jump to the next verse. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so in your own journey of faith, how did you come to understand that hard verse in Colossians? I came to understand it through a better understanding of the Catholic teaching of the body of Christ and how God, through his grace, works through his body the church, that we are all united. Um, St. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 
26 through 27. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So if we are part of the body of Christ and in our baptism, the scriptures teach we died with Christ and were raised with him in a certain way, being part, members of the body of Christ, we were crucified. Well, St. Paul says we were crucified with Christ. So our sufferings are Christ's sufferings. They're not our merit personally, but they are truly the sufferings of Christ. And through his grace, he is working through our life, working out and applying his sufferings to individual circumstances in people's lives. And we are able to, to pray for, to suffer for other people in Christ. And it is his grace and power by the Holy Spirit that makes it efficacious. Yeah, I think what helped me deal with that very verse, Jim, with what you've said, I'll just add to that, because mm -hmm. th that's exactly what what helped me see that. Uh, one thing was to recognize that one of the dangers so often amongst non-Catholic Christians is uh, a feeling of uh, that it was rational to always pit one idea versus the other. It's either, either or. this or that. Mm -hmm. And as you were a Methodist, Arminian, I was a Calvinist, Reformed, and one of the areas that always divided us was the either or of predestination, the right. either or of free will, the either or of all these things. We, we could never allow for the reality of the mystery of the both and, mm -hmm. that we as human beings are limited, <clears throat> that, that the wisdom of God is so far above ours that we need to recognize in humility that even the full understanding of why Christ had to become a man, why Christ lived 30 years and allowed himself to die on a cross, to allowed himself to suffer. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, when our Lord was tied to a stake and whipped bloodily, almost to death, when you think about it, never before in the history of the world had God himself experienced so much pain. Right. He knew pain but he experienced in a way that even he himself, think about that, mm -hmm. that Jesus was experiencing excruciating pain for the first mm -hmm. time. And then the cross and all of that. This is beyond our ability mm -hmm. to understand. There's a mystery here. How is it that God predestined everything from the beginning of time, yet we also have complete freedom to choose him? It's a mystery. It's a yeah. both and, and part of this, I think, th this misunderstanding, in fact, in my, many Protestants, a fear of mystery um, is a misunderstanding truly of the incarnation. We as 
Calvinists or Methodists had no problems with the doctrine of the Incarnation, we thought. Uh, but the, it, it in itself is a both-and. Jesus is fully God and fully man. How does that work out? And, and all of this, what we were talking about here with Colossians and redemptive suffering, is a working out of Christ's incarnation. And the church as the body of Christ is a part of the aspect of Christ's incarnation. We just never thought through all the ramifications of what that meant. We so often thought about the crucifixion was something that happened 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. What this talks about is the mysteriousness of the timelessness right. of that sacrifice. Uh, I mean, how is it that we even understand the fact that an incarnate God mm -hmm. suffers? Right. Just with that idea, how is it done, as he says from the cross? What is done? We enter the mystery of it. And I think the other verse that helped me deal with this was Second Thessalonians Chapter 15, uh, verse 15, when Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions mm -hmm. which were taught by us, us, either by word of mouth or by letter. The tradition itself, what our Lord passed on to the apostles and then to their disciples that were protected by the Holy Spirit as they were guided into truth and then preserved. The, the tradition wasn't merely what ended up on paper. Right. The tradition was a living word, a timeless word. And that's how we understand our suffering for the church. Now, we could have more to talk about that, Jim, but I'd like to, in a, a couple moments, we did get an email. And it, with every program, I'd love to try and deal with at least email. So quickly, uh, Jim, let's see if we can deal with this email that we got from Fred. I'm not sure if it's his real name, but he at least said this is Fred. <laughs> and he says, when you argue that the church is the one trustworthy teacher of Scripture, isn't this merely a circular argument since you use Scripture to defend the authority of the church? Now, what do you think, Jim? I think that, uh, you, Fred, you gained that uh, misunderstanding from us because we are trying to talk to our brother, Protestant brothers and sisters, who for them, the sole authority is Scripture. And uh, so if you want to convince someone of the truth of something, you speak to them in their language and in the context where they can relate and, fi and find convincing truth. For example, we might go to 1 Timothy 3.15, which right. says that the church is a pillar and bulwark of the truth. Of the truth, yes. Uh, but as Catholics, we are not bound by the Scripture alone. We believe that the authority of the church is Scripture, sacred tradition, the living tradition of the church and the authoritative teaching authority of the church, what's known as the magisterium. And so part of the tradition we find written in the early church fathers and very early, one of the very first documents outside that have been preserved outside of the New Testament are uh, the seven letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch. And he starts out by saying 
that uh, you are to hold to the teaching of the bishop, the presbyters, what we would call priests now, and the deacons. And uh, you are to see that uh, the bishop's words are the words of the father, and the presbyters around him are as um, the apostles. And, uh, so, and this goes on uninterrupted through history. So it isn't a circular logic. It's just that we choose to use a type of argument for our brothers and sisters in a way that would be more authoritative for them. Although there are other authoritative uh, sources that we could use should we chose. And Jim, even as Paul was writing in 1 Timothy 3.15, when he says that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. He wasn't saying that for the first time. He was building on a knowledge, which, as you can tell by the writing of that, that the people already knew yes. that the church had the authority. So it isn't just the written scripture. It's the wider yeah. uh, uh, apostolic deposit of faith that established the church as that which Jesus said he would build back in Matthew 16 when he built it on, right. on Peter. When Timothy first read that, he didn't think, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim, for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to more, find out more about our work, you can go to chnetwork.org or you can go to deepinscripture.com. You can find opportunities to send us an email or check out our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you next week on Deep in Scripture. God bless. See you then.